Chapter 16, Part 6 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 16, Part 6 Section 6, The Peace of Philocrates Her recent military efforts had exhausted the revenue of Athens. There was not enough money in the treasury to pay the judges their daily wage. Peace was clearly a necessity, and this must have been fully recognised by Eubulus. But there was great indignation at the fall of Olynthus, and the feeling that a disaster had been sustained was augmented by the fact that there were a considerable number of Athenians among the captives. Accordingly, the pressure of popular opinion, which was for the moment strongly aroused against Philip, induced Eubulus to countenance the dispatch of envoys to the cities of the Peloponnesus, for the purpose of organising a national resistance in Hellas against the man who had destroyed Olynthus. It is probable that this measure was advocated by Demosthenes, in later years a national resistance to Philip was his favourite idea. It was an effort foredoomed to failure, as Eubulus knew perfectly well. Yet it served his purpose, for it protected him against suspicions of being secretly friendly to Philip. On this occasion the orator Aeschines, famous as the antagonist of Demosthenes, first came prominently forward. He had begun life as an usher in a school kept by his father. He had then been a tragic actor, and finally a public clerk. He was now sent to rouse the Greeks of the Peloponnesus against Macedonia, and he used such strong language in his disparagement of Philip, especially at Megalopolis, that no one could accuse him of Philippizing. The mere fact that envoys were sent to Megalopolis, whose application for help had so recently been rejected by Athens, is enough to cast suspicion on the whole round of embassies as a farce, got up to satisfy public opinion at home. Demosthenes, like other politicians, saw the necessity of peace and worked towards it. Philip desired two things, to conclude peace with Athens, and to become a member of the Amphictyonic Council. Towards this second end a path was prepared by the Thebans, who, along with the Thessalians, addressed an appeal to Philip that he would undertake the championship of the Amphictyonic League and crush the Phocians. In Phocis itself there had recently been domestic strife, Palaecus had been disposed from the generalship, but he had a party of his own and held Thermopylae with the strong places in its neighbourhood. When it was noised abroad that Philip was about to march southward in answer to the Theban prayer, the Phocians invited Athens and Sparta to help them once again to hold the gates of Greece. Both Athens and Sparta again responded to the call, but the call had come from the political opponents of Palaecus, and he refused to admit either Spartan or Athenian into the pass. Philaeus seems to have previously assisted the enemies of Athens in Euboea, and statesmen at Athens might now feel some uneasiness, whether he would not turn traitor and surrender the pass to Philip. It was another reason for acquiescing in the necessity of making peace. The first overtures came from Athens. Ten Athenian envoys, and one representative of the Synedrion of Athenian allies, were sent to Pella to negotiate terms of peace with the Macedonian king. Among the envoys were Philocrates, who had proposed the embassy, Aeschines, and Demosthenes. 
The terms to which Philip agreed were that Athens and Macedon should each retain the territories of which they were actually in possession at the time the peace was concluded. The peace would be concluded when both sides had sworn to it. Both the allies of Macedonia and those of Athens were to be included, with two exceptions. Philip refused to treat with Halus in Thessaly, a place which he had recently attacked, or with the Phocians, whom he was determined to crush. By these terms, which were perfectly explicit, Athens would surrender her old claim to Amphipolis, and on the other hand, Philip would recognise Athens as mistress of the Chersonese. The two exceptions which Philip made were inevitable. Halus indeed was a trifle which no one heeded, but it was an essential part of the Macedonian policy to proceed against Phocis. To the envoys, whom the king charmed by his courteous hospitality at Pella, he privately intimated that he was far from being ill-disposed to the Phocians, and perhaps a few of them hoped that there was something in the assurance. But in truth the Athenian statesmen troubled themselves little about Phocis. Some of them, like the Theban Proxenos Demosthenes, were more disposed to lean towards Thebes. It would be necessary to keep up the appearance of protecting an ally, though relations with that ally had recently grown somewhat strained. But neither Eubulus nor Demosthenes would for a moment have dreamed of foregoing the peace for the sake of supporting Phocis against her enemies. There were a few Thracian forts, belonging to Cursobleptes, which Philip was anxious to capture before the peace was made. And when the envoys left Pella, he set out for Thrace, having given them an undertaking to respect the Chersonese. The envoys returned home, bearing with them a friendly letter from Philip to the Athenian people, and they were followed in a few days by three Macedonian delegates, appointed to receive the oaths from the Athenians and their allies. How important this negotiation was for Philip is proved by the fact that two of these deputies were the two greatest of his subjects, Parmenio and Antipater. On the motion of Philocrates, the peace was accepted by Athens on the terms which Philip offered, though there were dissentient voices against the exclusion of Phocus and Halus. But the murmurs of the opposition were silenced by the plain speaking of Eubulus, who showed that if the terms were rejected, the war must be continued. And some of the ambassadors disseminated the unofficial utterances of Philip, that he would not ruin the Phocians, and that he would help Athens to win back Euboea and Oropus. The upshot was that Phocus was not mentioned in the treaty. She was tacitly, not expressly, excluded. The peace was now concluded on one side, and it remained for the envoys of Athens to administer the oath to Philip and his allies. It was to the interest of Athens that this act should be accomplished as speedily as possible, for Philip was entitled to make new conquests until he swore to the peace, and he was actually engaged in making new conquests in Thrace. The same ambassadors who had visited Macedonia to arrange the terms of a treaty now set forth a second time to administer the oaths. Meanwhile, Philip had taken the Thracian fortresses which he had gone to take, and had reduced Cursobleptes to be a vassal of Macedonia. When he returned to Pella, he found not only the embassy from Athens, but envoys from many other Greek states also, awaiting his arrival with various hopes and fears. He was beginning to be recognised as the arbiter of northern Hellas. So far as the formal conclusion of the peace went, there was no difficulty. But the Athenian ambassadors had received general powers to negotiate further with Philip, with a view to some common decision on the settlement of the Phocian question and northern Greece. The treaty was a treaty of peace and alliance, and if Philip could have his way, the alliance would have become a bond of close friendship and cooperation.
and it was in this direction that Eubulus and his party were inclined cautiously to move. Athens might now have taken her position as joint arbitrator with Philip in the settlement of the Amphictyonic states. Both Philip and Athens had a common interest in reducing the power of Thebes, and if it was in the interest of Athens that Phocis should not be utterly destroyed, Philip had no special enmity against Phocis, whose strength was now exhausted. The Phocian sacrilege was a convenient pretext to interfere and step into the place of Phocis in the Delphian Amphictyony. A common programme was discussed, and might easily have been concerted between Philip and the ambassadors. To treat the Phocians with clemency and to force Thebes to acknowledge the independence of the Boeotian cities would have been the basis of common action. The restoration of Plataea was mentioned, and while Philip promised to secure the restitution to Athens of Euboea and Oropus, Athens would have supported the admission of Macedonia into the Amphictyonic Council. Eschines was the chief mouthpiece of the councils of Eubulus, but the project of an active alliance was opposed strenuously by Demosthenes, and as Demosthenes had great and daily increasing influence with the Athenian assembly, it would have been unsafe for Philip to conclude any definite agreement with the majority of the embassy. The policy of Demosthenes was to abandon the Phocians to their fate and to draw closer to Thebes, so that when his city had recovered from her financial exhaustion, Thebes and Athens together might form a joint resistance to the aggrandizement of Macedonia. In consequence of this irreconcilable division, which broke out in most unseemly quarrels among the ambassadors, nothing more was done than the administration of the oath. The envoys accompanied the king into Thessaly, and at Ferrai the oath was administered to the Thessalians, his allies. A peace was then arranged with Hellenessus, and the envoys returned to Athens, leaving Philip to proceed on his own way. It now remained to be seen whether Eubulus would carry the assembly with him in favour of a rational policy of cooperation with Macedon, or would be defeated by the brilliant oratory of his younger rival. Philip's course of action would depend upon the decision of the assembly. It was a calamity for Athens that at this critical moment there was no strong man at the helm of the state. The assembly was swayed between the opposite councils of Demosthenes, whose oratory was irresistible, and Eubulus, whose influence had been paramount for the past eight years. When the ambassadors returned, Demosthenes lost no time in denouncing his colleagues as having treacherously intrigued with Philip against the interests of the city. His denunciation was successful for a moment, and the usual vote of thanks to the embassy was withheld. But the success was only for a moment, as Chines and his colleagues defended their policy triumphantly before the assembly, and it was clear that the programme which they had discussed with Philip would have been satisfactory to the people. The assembly decreed that the treaty of peace and alliance should be extended to the posterity of Philip. It further decreed that Athens should formally call upon the Phocians to surrender Delphi to the Amphictyons, and should threaten them with armed intervention if they declined. Demosthenes appears to have made no opposition to this measure against the Phocians, and it seemed that the policy of cooperation with Philip was about to be realised. Philip, in the meantime, advanced southward. The pass of Thermopylae was held by Philacus, who had been reinforced by some Lacedaemonian troops. But Philacus had opened secret negotiations with Pella some months before, and the hostile vote of the Athenians decided him to capitulate on condition of departing unhindered where he would. Before he reached Thermopylae, Philip had addressed two friendly letters to Athens, inviting her to send an army to arrange the affairs of Phocis and Boeotia. 
Indisposed as the Athenian citizens were to leave Athens on military service, they lent ready ears to the absurd terrors which Demosthenes conjured up, suggesting that Philip would detain their army as hostages. Accordingly, they contented themselves with sending an embassy, on which Demosthenes declined to serve, to convey to Philip an announcement of the decree which they had passed against the Phocians. Thus swayed between Eubulus and Demosthenes, the Athenians had done too much or too little. They had abandoned the Phocians, and at the same time they resigned the voice which they should and could have had in this political settlement of northern Greece. As it was clear that Philip could not trust Athens, owing to the attitude of Demosthenes, he was constrained to act in conjunction with her enemy, Thebes. The cities of western Boeotia, which had been held by the Phocians, were restored to the Boeotian confederacy. The doom of the Phocians was decided by the Amphictyonic council which was now convoked. If some of the members had had their way, all the men of military age would have been cast down a precipice. But Philip would not have permitted this, and the sentence was as mild as could have been expected. The Phocians were deprived of their place in the Amphictyonic body, and all their cities, with the exception of Abai, were broken up into villages, so that they might not again be a danger to Delphi. They were obliged to undertake to pay back, by instalments of sixty talents a year, the value of the treasures which they had taken from the sanctuary. The Lacedaemonians were also punished for the support which they had given to Phocis, by being disqualified to return either of the members who represented the Dorian vote. The place which Phocis vacated in the council was transferred to Macedonia, in recognition of Philip's services in expelling the desecrators of the temple. The Athenian declaration against Phocis exempted Athens from the penalty which was inflicted on Sparta at this Amphictyonic meeting. But this was small comfort, and when the Athenians realized that they had gained nothing, and that Thebes had gained all she wanted, they felt with indignation that the statesmanship of their city had been unskilful. The futility of their policy had been mainly due to Demosthenes, who had done all in his power to thwart Eubolus and he now seized the occasion to discredit that statesman and his party. He encouraged his fellow countrymen in the unreasonable fear that Philip would invade Attica, and the panic was so great that they brought their families and movable property from the country into the city. The fear was soon dispelled by a letter from Philip himself, but Demosthenes had succeeded in creating a profound distrust of Philip, and there was soon an opportunity of expressing his feeling. An occasion offered itself to Philip almost immediately to display publicly to the assembled Greek world the position of leadership which he had thus won. It so happened that the celebration of the Pythian Games fell in the year of the peace. It will be remembered how the despot of Ferai, when he had made himself ruler of Thessaly, was about to come down to Delphi and assume the presidency of the Pythian feast, when he was cut down by assassins. The ambitions and plans of Ferai had passed to Pella, and Greece, which had dreaded the claims of the Thessalian tyrant, had now to bend the knee before the Macedonian king. Athens sulked. She sent no deputy to the Amphictyonic meeting which elected Philip president for the festival, no delegates to the festival itself. This marked omission was a protest against the admission of Macedonia to the Amphictyonic League, and Philip understood it as such. But he did not wish to quarrel with Athens. He hoped ultimately to gain her goodwill and instead of marching into Attica, whither his Thessalian and Theban friends would have only too gladly followed him, 
he contented himself with sending an embassy to notify to the Athenian people the vote which made him a member of the Amphictyony, and to invite them to concur. The invitation was in fact an ultimatum. Eubulus and his party had lost their influence in the outburst of anti-Macedonian feeling which Demosthenes had succeeded in stirring up. But the current had gone too far, and Demosthenes had some difficulty in allaying the spirits which he had conjured up. The assembly was ready, on the slightest encouragement, to refuse its concurrence to the Amphictyonic decree, and Demosthenes was forced to save the city from the results of his own agitation by showing that it would be foolish and absurd to go to war now for the shadow at Delphi. Rarely had Athens been placed in such an undignified posture, a plight for which she had to thank the brilliant orator whom a malignant fate had sent to guide her on a futile path. From this time forward, Demosthenes was the most influential of her counsellors. Neither Demosthenes, the eloquent speaker, nor Eubulus, the able financier, saw far into the future. The only man of the day, perhaps, who grasped the situation in its ecumenical aspect, who described, as it were, from without, the place of Macedonia in Greece and the place of Greece in the world, was the nonagenarian Isocrates. He had never ventured to raise his voice in the din of party politics. He had kept his garments unspotted from the defilement of public life, and when he condescended to give political advice to Greece, it was easy for the second-rate statesman as well as the party hat to laugh at a mere man of study stepping into a field where he had no practical experience. But Isocrates discerned the drift of events, where the orators who madly declaimed in the Pnics were at fault, and the view which he took of the situation after the conclusion of the peace of Philocrates simply anticipated the decrees of history. He explained his view in an open letter to King Philip. He had long since seen the endless futility of perpetuating that international system of Greece which existed within the memory of men, a number of small sovereign states, which ought by virtue of all they had in common to form a single nation, divided and constantly at feud. The time had come, he thought, to unite Greece, now that there had arisen a man who had the brains, the power and the gold to become the central pivot of the Union. Sovereign and independent the city-states would of course remain, but they might be drawn together into one fold by a common hope and allegiance to a common leader, and under such a leader as Philip there was a great programme for Greece, and not a mere programme of ambition undertaken for the sake of something to do, but an enterprise which was urgently needed to meet a pressing social danger. We have already seen how Greece was flooded for many years past with a superfluous population who went about as armed rovers, attached to no city, hiring themselves out to any state that needed fighting men, a constant menace to society. A new country to colonize was the only remedy for this overflow of Greece, as Isocrates recognized, and the new country must be won from the barbarian. The time had come for Hellas to take the offensive against Persia, and the task appointed for Philip was to lead forth the hosts of Hellas on this splendid enterprise. If he did not destroy the whole empire of the great king, he might at least annex Asia Minor from Cilicia to Sinope to the Hellenic world and appropriate it to the needs of the Hellenic folk. Ten years later the fulfilment of this task which Isocrates laid upon Philip was begun, not indeed by Philip himself, but by his successor. We shall see in due time how the fulfilment surpassed the utmost hopes of the Athenian speculator. But it is fair to note how justly Isocrates had discerned the signs of the times and the tendency of history. He saw that the inveterate quarrel between Europe and Asia, which had existed since the Trojan War, was the great abiding fact. 
he foresaw that it must soon come to an issue, and throughout the later part of his long life he was always watching for the inevitable day. The expedition of Cyrus and the campaign of Agesilaus were foreshadowings of that day, and it had seemed for a moment that Jason of Ferrai was chosen to be the successor of Agamemnon and Simon. Now the day had come at last. The choice of destiny had fallen upon the man of Macedonia, and Isocrates knew that this expansion of Greece would meet Greece's chief practical need. It is instructive to contrast his sane and practical view of the situation of Greece with the chimerical conservatism of some of his contemporaries. This conservatism, to which the orator Demosthenes gave a most noble expression, was founded on the delusion that the Athens of his day could be converted by his own eloquence and influence into the form and feature of the Periclean city. This was a delusion which took no account of the change which events had wrought in the Athenian character. It was a noble delusion which could have misled no great statesman or hard-headed thinker. It did not mislead Isocrates. He appreciated the trend of history and saw the expansion of Greece, to which the world was moving. End of chapter 16, part 6